Good afternoon. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, from the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome once again to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you who are just joining us through either our webcast or our podcast, welcome to the lunch. It is now my pleasure to introduce our head table guests. I would ask that each of you rise when your name is called. Uh, if you could hold your applause to the end, that would be great. But if you feel compelled to clap, go ahead. We support that as well. So first off, our guest of honor, the Honorable Andrea Horvath, leader of Ontario's New Democrats. Next, we have Mr. James Skoniak, Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Environment for Bruce Power. Mr. Robin Sears, Principal at Ernst Cliff Strategy and a past president of the Empire Club. Ms. Megan Boyle, Director of Public Affairs at Red Bull Canada and a director at the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Matthew Thornton, Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications for the Ontario Real Estate Association. Beside him is Mr. Kent Emerson, Associate Vice President of Municipal and Stakeholder Relations at MPAC and the first Vice President of the Empire Club of Canada. It's a mouthful. Ms. Taylor McKenna, Advisor for Government Relations from Bruce Power. Ms. Merritt Stiles, President of the Federal NDP and Toronto District School Board Trustee for Ward 9. And once again, my name is Paul Fogelin. I'm the Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario, another mouthful, and a past president of the Empire Club. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. So if I've done my math right, there are 197 days until the next provincial election. Don't go on your phones and check. It's abundantly clear, however, to anybody who's paying attention that election season is upon us. Political ads have hit the airwaves. Our social media feeds are inundated with ads as well. Town halls are fashionable once again. And all three political party leaders have hit the hustings, eager to convince Ontarians that their plan is the right plan. I'd like to quote the Dalai Lama, a very wise man who also happens to wear lots of orange. Nice coincidence. He once said, quote, in order to carry a positive action, we must develop a positive vision, end quote. It's a great privilege to have Andrea Horvath, the leader of Ontario's New Democrats, here with us today to share her vision of what's next for Ontario. She'll start with a speech from this podium, followed by a fireside chat, just picture a fire over here, with our good friend Robin Sears. Andrea since early in her career as a community development to today, has always believed that government should be about giving people the opportunity to build a good life, no matter where they live in Ontario or when they made this province their home. Born and raised in Hamilton, Andrea was elected to Hamilton City Council in 1997 and then as MPP for Hamilton Centre in 2004. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very, very warm welcome to Andrea Horvath. Well, good afternoon, everyone. 
Bonjour tout le monde. Thank you uh, very much for the introduction. I appreciate that. 1997 was my first election, so that's uh, 20 years in politics for me this year. So I'm thrilled to be here with you to celebrate that 20 years. I think it was last week, the official uh, anniversary of my first election. But before I get into my formal remarks, I do want to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit. And I want to take a moment to thank all of you for being here this afternoon. You know, the Empire Club has an incredible history. For 114 years, this institution has been at the forefront of debate on the most important issues facing our country and facing our province. And today, as Ontario's NDP leader, and as the woman who wants to lead our entire province forward, I'm honoured to be able to talk about our future, our future, and where Ontario goes from here. We live in an incredible place. The city we're in today is one of the envies of the world. Wouldn't you all agree? One of the envies of the world, Toronto. And of course, this city is on the verge of becoming one of the great metropolises of the globe. People around the world actually want to live here. Young people want to move here. And families want to do everything they can to give their children every opportunity to succeed and thrive right here in Ontario. I got to tell you, I love this province. And that's what drives me each and every day. Because I believe we can build an even better future for everyone who calls this province home. I think we can do more to support our families, our communities, and our young people. And we can grow our prosperity and ensure that everyone shares in the benefits of that prosperity. But to do that, we need to recognize that our economy is changing fast. And this economic shift presents both opportunities, but also challenges for Ontario and for our next government. Today, too many businesses face barriers to investing here, barriers to investing and, and barriers to creating jobs. And for millions of employees, work is just not what it used to be. The security that used to come with full-time work simply isn't there anymore for far too many people in Ontario. And in the face of these challenges, the question that millions of people in this province are asking today is what comes next for Ontario? What comes next for our great province? What kind of leadership do we need to move this entire province forward and make sure that Ontario's, Ontarians rather see tangible benefits tangible benefits as our economy shifts instead of being left behind. I believe that the next government, one that I'm running to lead, must be guided by three priorities when it comes to our future and our economy. And these are priorities that I want to share with you today. Because true leadership, in my humble opinion, true leadership is all about telling people what you're going to do and then actually doing it. So the first priority for me is this. We must ensure continued economic growth here in Ontario. I would think most people in this room would agree with that. 
we must continue to see economic growth for our province. Instead of cutting services, cutting investment, and cutting jobs, as some would suggest, we must invest to grow our economy and build on what's already working. We must make critical infrastructure improvements and investments. From broad broadband to transit, we have to build infrastructure that our growing province needs, like delivering express rail, for example, from Toronto to Kitchener-Waterloo. The lack of fast transit options, the lack of a speedy way to get back and forth between our innovation corridor in the Kitchener-Waterloo area is standing in the way of investment and growth. And I hear it every time I'm in Kitchener-Waterloo. The concern continues to grow that we haven't gotten to that point yet where we can connect that corridor with this great city. So let's do something about it. Let's actually do something about it. Let's get that job done. And as we invest in infrastructure, we must also provide uh, investment in sustainable development and sustainable uh, infrastructure investments that support regional industries and that support the innovation clusters that we have sprinkled around our province. We need not only to welcome investment, we need to certainly do that, but we don't only need to welcome investment, we need to invite it. We need to pursue it. We need to aggressively make the case for Ontario, which I believe is one of the best places in the world to invest. You know, from auto, uh, manufacturing, film and television sector, to research and development, to agriculture and agribusiness. Notre croissance économique est très important. But to secure our future growth, we must also take a hard look at what is not working in Ontario. And we have to be upfront about that. What isn't working in our province? And as we identify what's not working in our province, then we have to commit to doing something about it. And that brings me to my second point. I believe that the success of middle-class families is the most important measure of our prosperity. And more than ever, people need to have a premier who's actually working for them. You know, I think of the mothers that I've met in this city in particular who have taken the time to take me aside and open up to me about what they're going through, tell me their stories, their challenges, what everyday, what everyday life looks like for them. Many of those moms are working two and three jobs just to get by. They're working two and three jobs just to put food on the table for their kids. And there are so many people in this province who are in exactly that same situation, working long hours but finding it harder and harder just to make ends meet. Just take a minute and think about folks who are in that situation. You know, when politicians like me and others talk about the rate of GDP growth for our province, it means nothing, nothing at all to people who are struggling to get by. And it means nothing to folks who feel they're doing everything they possibly can, everything they possibly can. They think that they're doing everything right, and yet they still can't get ahead. So people start thinking that government and the economy just can't work for them. They feel let down. People start to feel like things just can't get any better, and they lose hope.
When I hear that sense of disappointment in people's voices, you know what? I look them in the eye and I assure them that it doesn't have to be this way. It does not have to be this way in our great province. It absolutely does not. We can have leadership that gives people hope again. And we can give people the tools to build a better life for themselves with better jobs, better wages, and more benefits. I am passionate about this. I passionately believe that this is the case, that we can do so much better in this great province. And as we grow our economy, government must deliver results that have measurable, positive impacts on people. And as we grow our economy, government needs to ensure that our economic progress helps fuel reinvestment in Ontario's people and families. That's why I've laid out my plans to partner with cities, cities like this one that we're in, cities like Toronto, to provide crucial provincial leadership that's been lacking for far too long. We have to support moms and dads by investing in affordable childcare. We have to help families find housing that they can afford by investing in things like social housing and by doing more to help people realize their dream of home ownership. We must deliver a world-class transit system by restoring provincial operating funding to the TTC and public transit systems across Ontario. Funding that, you may know, was cut by the Conservative government many years ago and was never reinstated by the Liberal government. That extra funding for transit systems will do a heck of a lot to improve our transit systems in this great city, as I said, and around the province, and it will also help municipalities to provide better services for the people who use transit. You know, you'll also remember that the um, Conservatives also decided way back then, in the 90s, that they were going to cover in a hole that was being built, a tunnel that was being uh, built for the, um, the Eglinton subway. So we know where Conservatives are when it comes to transit investments. They are not very supportive. And we certainly can't go back to that next time around because those kinds of cuts are extremely irresponsible. They take the wind out of our sails as a city and as a province. And they hurt the very people, the people who live in this city, who need to see that the Premier of this province is working for them. This is why my plan is focused on solving real problems and making things better for people and for businesses that are the backbone of our economy. It's why New Democrats have a plan to lower hydro bills by 30% for families and businesses. It's why I believe that the province's business support programs should do a much better job of supporting small businesses to create good jobs. And it's why we have to fix our procurement processes and policies so that Ontario's homegrown businesses can actually qualify to bid for and actually win some of the contracts that come from the government of Ontario. I want Ontario's homegrown success stories to thrive. And that means taking down the barriers that prevent a level playing field. Ontario's families and businesses 
must see and feel the benefits of our economic growth. I don't think that's too much to ask for. And that is my focus. Now, as we continue to grow our economy, and as we ensure that people see the benefits of growth in their own lives, we must do more to prepare Ontario for the future of work. And this is the third crucial priority that guides my thinking on the economy. I think you would all agree that the pace of change that we're seeing is only accelerating. People no longer spend their entire careers with one company. Many workers are very, very mobile, much more mobile, much more flexible, but also working without the security and stability that people need to build a good life for themselves and for their families. And traditional industries are being disrupted faster than ever as new industries emerge and exert huge influence on the future of our economy. Our next Premier cannot let these opportunities or challenges go unanswered. As new jobs demand new skills, we have to get our labour market policies right, starting with more support for work-integrated learning. I want to see a future where every young person is able to graduate from college or university with experience under their belt, experience under their belt in their chosen field. I hear from too many young people who finish their studies and are out into the workforce only to be turned back by potential employers who say, you have a great, you know, a great academic history, but you have no experience. Come back when you have some experience. Very disheartening for young people. I want to see a future where those young people actually get their foot in the door of an employer upon graduation, and I want to see a future where every single employer can find new grads with the experience they need to contribute to your teams from day one. A government that I lead will do more to support opportunities that people need to fully participate in our changing workforce. And that work can only be done in partnership with you the businesses, the labour organisations, educational institutions and professional associations of Ontario, every step of the way. As we prepare the new workforce, we must also meet the new needs of that workforce. And with more and more people working without health benefits as they hopscotch back and forth to different employment opportunities, and employers on the other hand, continuing to see the cost of drug benefits increasing, the evidence, I think, is very clear. It's time for government to step up and deliver, deliver universal prescription drug coverage, not just for young people, but for all Ontarians. It is necessary now. And I have to say, I'm, I'm really proud of my party for being the only party that has a plan to do exactly that. You know, pharmacare for everyone means lower costs. It means lower costs for businesses. It means lower costs for, uh, for direct payers. It means less worry for people. And it means better health. Better health for our population and for our workforce. And with our plan for universal prescription drug coverage, not only will every Ontarian have access to the medications that they need, 
but we will also help Ontario's businesses save at least $800 million per year in employee drug costs. Pharmacare for everyone is a win-win for families and for our economy. It will help the bottom line for businesses and it will help the people of this province. It is absolutely a necessity for our changing economy. That's exactly the kind of positive change that we need to see here in Ontario. And that's why it's at the heart of my plan to grow our economy and to make sure that Ontarians see the benefits of that economic growth. So, what comes next for Ontario? As I said, this is the crucial question that millions and millions of Ontarians are going to be asking themselves. And I believe the choice is becoming increasingly clear. A better future is possible in this province if we have the right leadership with the right priorities. That's why we must continue to grow our province and build on the successes that we have been able to achieve thus far. We must also ensure that middle-class families see more of the benefits in their own lives, and we must make smart steps to prepare for the changing workforce so that Ontarians can thrive instead of being left behind. This is the vision of hope and opportunity that I'll be offering to the people of Ontario over the coming months. These are the economic priorities that guide my decisions and the decisions of my team. And this afternoon, I have to say that I'm thrilled to share all of that with you. And I know that you know, the formal part of the remarks are done, but we do have a great opportunity to have a little bit more of a dialogue, which I look forward to. And so I'm going to get to right into that discussion by inviting Robin Sears up to the stage with me. Thank you for your kind attention during my prepared remarks. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. You too. Is this working? Mic on? Check, check. <clears throat> Andrew, you, you mentioned at the beginning this is your 20th anniversary in politics, but to my mind, an even more impressive anniversary is I think in March you will be celebrating a ninth anniversary as party That's leader. True. There are probably people in this room who don't know what an unpleasant job being an opposition party leader is. <laughs> being the third party, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> I used to say when I was in Harness, I get to stay in every crummy motel from one end of the province to the other. How do you do it? What drives you? What keeps you going? Um, you know, what really drives me is the energy that I get from people. Um, I've had the honor and the privilege of doing this for, for nine years, as you said, almost. Uh, but every part of Ontario that I go to, Robin, uh, I meet people that are amazing. And, and whether that's... Um, you know, a young immigrant family trying to make it uh, in Ontario, uh, whether that's uh, Syrian refugees who are, are trying to, you know, stabilize their families and, and begin to uh, build a life here, whether that's, uh, you know, someone here on Bay Street uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, a mogul in terms of the business community, or, or whether that's, you know, a steel worker in Hamilton. Uh, people in this province are, are wonderful. They're amazing people. And I get, I, I really do draw my energy from them, from their hopes, from their dreams, from their concerns from their ideas um, and you know after all of these years I, I'm still it's I'm still not tired 
believe it or not, I'm still not tired of, of meeting all the great people in this province and, and, and uh, trying to find with them the solutions that will, will make life better for them. I think another thing that a lot of people may not know about you is that behind that winning smile and charming personality is a stainless steel spine. Um, <laughs> Andrea got to every level of her career over the resistance of older white guys, mostly, I say with some blush, and uh, she won every rung up the ladder on her own initiative. So if you believe that leadership is about character, I think you've You've demonstrated character. Tell my, me. my dad used to say I had the constitution of a horse. I don't know if that was a compliment. <laughs> he used to say that to me. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you deal with the tensions of the job and the tensions in a caucus and the attacks from all the usual suspects? Like, what keeps you going through that? Uh, well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things. I try to get to the gym in the morning just to reduce the stress, um, and that's important, right, because it's both mental and physical. Uh, but, I mean, I have a, I have a son who's uh, in my basement still. It's a whole other story. I'm not going there. That's why you're keen on training. Uh, yeah, we have, yeah, that's why I'm keen on the training part. We have a great little dog, and, you know, dogs are always, uh, always good. But, but you know, it's, it, nobody does this kind of job alone. Nobody does this kind of work alone. And so, you know, as I was talking about the, the strangers that I meet and over the years and uh, that I've been able to connect with, I also have a great team of, of, of staff and of MPPs that are very supportive. And yes, there are sometimes tussles in our caucus and, and sometimes our MPPs are not as disciplined as you might want them to be, um, but they work really hard. And, and we have a vision uh, for, the, for the future of this province that we all very much believe in uh, and that... Um, that although it sometimes is, uh, you know, it's very wearing to try to do the work necessary to realize that vision, having that vision um, and knowing that there are teams of people uh, that are kind of on your side and working towards the same vision, uh, including the, the great people at the NDP in terms of the party folks as well and the membership that we have across the province, that, that helps, it helps with the stamina, you know, helps mm -hmm. you with, with your stamina for sure. So let's talk about a couple of policy things just briefly. <clears throat> I don't think I have ever seen a government of Ontario leave office bragging about its success with Ontario Hydro or power. To put it politely, um, that's not usually one of the bragging rights that governments go out of power with, which says two things, I guess. It's very hard to get right because everybody's had challenges, and also that it's really hard to make change successfully. Mm -hmm. How would you fix the problems that you've inherited to reduce the cost of power? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think it's, uh, it's of a concern to us that the current government went ahead um, against the wishes of 80% of Ontarians uh, and sold off Hydro One. Uh, folks did not want to see that happen. Uh, and so at the same time as the privatization has occurred, we've again continued to see rates increasing. Uh, we just had the government um, put together a $40 billion plan to give temporary relief to people on their bills, uh, which was not very wise financially. And then, of course, uh, we see a long-term energy plan that just uh, was recently um, made public that shows that, in fact, bills are going to go up pretty, sh pretty soon. Uh, and in a very worrisome uh, piece of that plan, it shows that industry and industrial rates particularly are going to go up between you know, 40 and 50 percent uh, within the next 10 years. I don't think people can afford that. I don't think business can afford that. I don't think industry can afford that. Uh, you know, people's bills are going to be going up about 43% uh, within a short period of time as well. And so 
that's not a responsible way to, um, to manage the system. So we have been very bold, and folks in this room might know uh, that we've been pretty bold in our plans when it comes to Hydro One. We believe that Hydro One should be operating in the best interests of Ontarians, not the best interests of shareholders. Uh, so our pet plan to bring hydro rates down by 30% uh, includes bringing Hydro One back into public ownership, which we would do over a period of time, utilizing the dividends that uh, that are uh, that are that the ones that are still coming accruing to the province as opposed to the shareholders, um, and so that will take us some time for sure. Uh, but we will bring it back into public ownership. Uh, we've also looked at the system to try to figure out how what are other ways that we can provide some relief, and so some of those include um, eliminating the time of use mandatory time of use pricing, uh, ensuring that the delivery uh, charges the delivery rates are equitable across the province, so we know that rural uh, and remote communities and smaller communities uh, really take the hit on delivery charges, so we're going to equalize those. We also know there's a lot of excess power in our system, and we know that the government's not getting top dollar for that excess power, so there's two pieces there. There's one piece around um, making sure that as contracts come uh, due for renegotiation for renewal, and we know that there are many that are coming for renewal within the first couple of years after uh, the election that's coming uh, next year. Uh, we will look very carefully at whether we need that power. Uh, do we need to re-sign some of these contracts? Uh, the other piece is uh, finding a more efficient way, a more effective way, really, of, um, of getting our, um, our power to market. So other jurisdictions have... Um, have put in place different tools to uh, to market the the energy to their customers over longer term contracts, get, giving them a better price. And we're going to look at some of those things as well. Uh, so we have a number of. In fact, our plan is is online. It's available for people to look at. Uh, we spent uh, we spent almost a year trying to put it together and, and figure out with experts what opportunities we had. Uh, so those are uh, those are the big pieces. I'm sure there are others as well. We are still going to try to get the federal government to. Uh, uh, to come to the table on the, um, the federal portion of the uh, HST. So let's talk about another area where federal-provincial cooperation is traditionally uh, essential. How can you do a pharmacare plan in one province if Ottawa doesn't step up to assist with a national formulary, national pricing structure? How do you make it feasible for even a province as big as Ontario to go it alone? Well, I mean, we have, uh, again, we've had the advice from uh, the top um, national expert um, in this, uh, in the pharmacare, uh, you know, realm. Uh, he has helped us with our plan. And in fact, we, we believe that we can. I mean, the same way that Tommy Douglas uh, brought uh, Medicare to Canada was through, a, through an initial province. And he did that work. Uh, and then it was, it was spread across the country. And so when we look at Ontario, I mean, there's, there are almost 14 million people. That's, that's a huge population uh, to, um, to, to bring online for Medicare. And so what our plan would do, uh, it, would, it would provide initially, so just initially, the most commonly prescribed uh, drugs for the most common ailments as the first, uh, the first um, um, initial process. That will do a number of things. It'll, it'll create a, a lot of space in terms of companies, particularly businesses and even government, uh, that, that are already covering those drugs through drug benefit plans. And so that will either create savings and or more room in those plans to provide other kinds of benefits. Um, $800 million. Uh, it will, the plan itself, uh, $475 million, 
which is a one-third of 1% of Ontario's budget, one-third of 1%, $475 million. So it, financially, it's doable, it's feasible. absolutely feasible. Um, and, you know, it'll, it'll it, hopefully what we'll end up with is the, the pressure coming from other provinces then to the federal government to expand, expand the plan. But there's no way that here uh, in this day and age, particularly as I said in my remarks, when you see how rapidly our economy is changing, uh, when you, you, know, you hear terms that have been coined now, it's the gig economy, uh, right? There's lots of, uh, lots of people who, who don't have full-time jobs, who are, who are cobbling together all kinds of different contracts. Some of those are in our college system. That's a whole other story we're not going to talk about. Um, but, uh, but the reality is, I mean, it's, it's time to actually look at how do we, uh, how do we you know, create a, an environment where that kind of work um, is, is sustainable for families. And, and, and this Pharmacare plan is part of that. And so the, the savings are, are going to be you know, amazing, but it's also going to take a lot of stress off of families and a lot of pressure off of families. And it's going to take stress and pressure off of our, our uh, healthcare system as well and off our, our hospital system. But there's no way in this day and age that, that people should be going to the doctor with, with, a, you know, with an illness uh, and be written a prescription and then walk out of that doctor's office knowing full well that they're not going to be able to fill that prescription. That is, it, I mean, it should not be happening. So the other, the last piece is when you think about 14 million people, that's a huge number. That's a huge number. And that number alone is going to help us when it comes to negotiating drug prices as well. So that's another savings uh, that we will get. Uh, so it's, um, it's a, as I said in the remarks, it's a win-win situation all the way around. That's W-I-N, by the way. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and we're looking forward to the opportunity to be able to bring that to, to Ontarians. And then, you know, as time goes on, uh, the, the number of drugs covered will change. It will grow. Finally, I guess, let me um, frame the 197 days ahead of you here. As, yeah, thanks uh, for that reminder. Out. <laughs> you're the veteran. You're the most seasoned performer on the circuit going out this time. You're the one who has seen more of the challenges of being a leader in an election campaign than either of your competitors. What do you want voters to see, or as spin doctors would say, what's the ballot question for you? Oh, I don't even know that we have a ballot question yet. I mean, I think that ballot question comes a little bit... What would you like it to be? What what do you want people to judge? I mean, I think what what people... I'm hoping that what people are looking at uh, this time around is what's next for Ontario and taking a real hard look at what's next for Ontario. I mean, we're hearing a lot of disappointment. Uh, Everywhere I go now, I hear a lot of disappointment in the current government. Uh, It's been 14 years. People are pretty disappointed on a number of different levels for a number of different reasons. Uh, in some places, that disappointment uh, can more accurately be described as anger, frustration. Um, but it's pretty much everywhere now. I mean, it, it used to be that, uh, and James and I were just talking about this a little earlier, it used to be that when I travel to northern Ontario or southwestern Ontario, uh, you would get that, that sense of, uh, we're done with the Liberals. Um, we're hearing that now you know, pretty much consistently everywhere. But it's not just about that, right? It's not just about you know, getting rid of the current government. It's about what's next, what comes next for this province, and how do we continue to move the province forward? And how do we make sure that, uh, that some of the good things that have happened uh, are continuing on uh, so that we continue to get the benefits of, of some of the positive changes we've seen uh, while we, we then 
you know, use that as a platform to, to move the province forward. And that's why the ideas we're bringing forward around, around pharmacare, around hospitals, around, uh, around work-integrated learning and uh, flexible workplaces, um, these are things that we think are important for the future of the province. I think you've outlaid a great vision, and now I think it's the audience's turn to ask some questions. Oh, very good. Do I see anybody at a microphone back there? Oh, sorry. Ah. Always uh, a pleasure, uh, Andrea, to hear your vision for the province. I'm uh, Harvey Cooper with the Co-op Housing Federation of Canada. Uh, you mentioned in your chat with, uh, with Robin that uh, your son is... Uh, like many others, uh, living in their parents' basement. And I believe one of your remarks was uh, helping partnering with cities to try to give people more opportunity to find a place they can afford. Maybe, uh, you know, you can give you an opportunity to spell out a little further uh, what your party will do to address those affordable housing challenges that are affecting a wide spectrum of Ontarians, not only low and modest uh, income earners, but middle and even upper income earners. Thank you. Thanks, Harvey. Thanks for the question. Um, no, you've raised a great, uh, a great point, and it's, uh, it's very worrisome. I mean, we see so many young people who don't even think that they'll be able to, to buy a house. I mean, I've talked to, uh, to people in their early 20s my son not included, um, uh, but you know, early 20s, mid 20s, who are saying they're they're not even thinking of of um, you know of, of looking for a, you know a permanent relationship, um, you know, settling down, you know, uh, starting their own family. They're putting those decisions off. Uh, it, they've made conscious decisions to put those decisions off until uh, until they're 30 or, or older. Uh, we we see so many young people and, and and people generally who who had 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 a hope to kind of maybe move back to the neighborhood that they were raised in, mm-hmm. and you know that hope has been dashed over the last couple of years. And so 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 we have on a number of levels we have real concerns around around uh, the housing situation. And so there's and it goes everything from you know, the private market system and, and home ownership. Uh, where we're still concerned about the, uh, you know, the cost of, of owning a home, the cost of buying into the market as it stands. Uh, uh, we're still concerned about the impacts of, of property flipping and, uh, uh, and you know, people buying up properties that, uh, as investments as opposed to uh, people who are buying to, to live in those homes, what that does to neighbourhoods, what that does to the stability of neighbourhoods. We've seen what happened in Vancouver in terms of what that did to their, uh, to their, uh, you know, their local economy where all those condos were sitting empty. I mean, that's not a good place to be. So we're certainly aware of needing to address some of those things. But then we also have um, we have a, a social housing stock uh, that has not kept up with the needs of uh, people at the lower income level. Uh, we've made a commitment already uh, to be there with municipalities uh, on the repair backlog that exists for social housing. I mean, there's no way that this city should be in a situation where it's contemplating, you know, shutting hundreds of shuttering hundreds of units uh, while there continues to be a, you know, a, a hundred thousand people on the waiting list for social housing. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so we we know that the downloading occurred under the Conservative government when it comes to social housing. I was on city council at that time in Hamilton. We were sounding the alarm bells even back then that that housing didn't come with appropriate uh, maintenance and replacement reserves. And so now here we are, fast forward 25 years later, uh, and and the cities are in a pickle. So we've made the commitment to be at the table with uh, one-third of of, uh, the funding for the repair backlogs, not only for Toronto, uh, but for the entire province. But there's also then, there's also the... There's a middle, right? There's a, that middle ground where there's uh, where there's still 
a lack of opportunity for people. So when I'm not talking the higher income folks or necessarily the lowest income folks, but just getting in your door, uh, getting in the door to get to your, your first condo or your first, uh, your first unit is still problematic. So there's a couple of things, and some of that's on the supply side, but some of that's also on the stability of work side as well. Uh, and I think these things, these things all go together. And, and when young people are facing uncertainty in terms of their jobs, uncertainty in terms of you know, the, the, the stabil their economic stability over time, uh, they're less likely to, you know, to jump into the housing market. So there's a there's a lot of I think solutions. There's not just one silver bullet. I think that's um, naive to think that there would be. Uh, but uh, but certainly we're we're keeping an eye on ex all of these things and looking for the solutions. Some of which we've already um, announced. Thanks, Harvey. We have one more question. Oh. Uh. Hi, Andrea. It's Karen from ETFO. Um, a strong and prosperous Ontario includes a, a, a vibrant education system, one that works for all Ontarians. Can you just share a little bit for us what uh, you envision uh, a strong, publicly funded public education system looks like? Sure, Karen. Thanks, uh, thanks for the question. Um, we have been concerned by the um, education system here in the province and what's happening to it. We see schools closing and sometimes in neighborhoods, and it's, it's quite interesting, we see schools closing in neighborhoods in this city, for example, where you'll never be able to build a school again in that neighborhood because the price of property has gone up so high that losing a school in some of these you know, Toronto neighborhoods is, is not just about today and how many students are here today, but what, you know, how are we going to have that asset, that public asset for the future. And then you have the rural schools and rural communities in smaller town Ontario where, where kids are being put on, like kids who are little, who are like five and six years old, being put on buses for literally an hour uh, or more to get to school and then an hour or more to get back. And so and that's not great, great either. So just even in terms of the, the infrastructure, uh, we have some real problems. We have a, a backlog of maintenance in our schools. And as a person that's a, an educator yourself, you'll know uh, that uh, that backlog means that there are kids in the winter that are actually at their, at their desks with coats and mitts on. Um, and in the summertime, sweltering and fainting from the heat. So there's, uh, there's you know, on the, uh, again, on the infrastructure side, there's, there's real issues there. But then we also see, you know, a... a a school system at the elementary level and at the secondary level where resources have been withdrawn and, and pulled away. And again, we were talking at our table here a few minutes ago about you know, the, the challenge of, of, of supporting students that need extra help and how those supports have been frittered away, how they've been uh, reduced as school boards have been trying to deal with the lack of funding to meet the needs of students. And yet we know that young people and children, particularly uh, who are being identified with learning challenges and exceptionalities, uh, are that, that num those numbers are growing. And so at the same time that we see children needing more help in the schools, we see less provision of, uh, of, uh, of supports uh, by the government. And so we're, re we're really, really concerned about that. We believe that every child should be able to reach their full potential through the support uh, of the dedicated people that work in our, our public education system. And we need to make sure that that public education system is able to provide those supports for those kids. Uh, we, we have issues around the EQAO um, uh, testing 
regime, uh, real concerns about that, about uh, whether or not it's actually effective uh, for young people, uh, whether it actually really provides anything other than you know, numbers for the government to, to work with. Uh, we know it provides a great deal of stress, both on educators and importantly on students and, and their families. Uh, so we're looking hard at where we need to make improvements to our education system. And I know that we engage with educational workers and, uh, uh, and their unions uh, on a regular basis to make sure that when, when we form government next year, uh, we are, we are, we're doing things that improve our education system, not only for our children, not only for our families, but for our economy as well, because those young people then are the, peop are the people that are going to be required to, um, you know, to be the workers and the, the thinkers and the, uh, uh, and the, uh, you know, the aspirational, uh, you know, human beings that move our province forward over time. And so it's, it's really, for us, for New Democrats, uh, the education piece is extremely important. So I look forward to engaging with, uh, with ETFO and others uh, as, we, as we get our platform uh, finalized and as we form government and, and begin to, um, to bring some, some serious uh, improvements to public education. Thank you. I think we're getting the hook. We're getting the hook. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrea, for the very passionate remarks, and Robin for facilitating a very open and candid conversation. A round of applause, please, once again. It's my pleasure at this time to invite Mr. James Skoniak from Bruce Power to give the official thank you. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much, Paul. And, and just to, to, to wrap up the lunch, and it's my honor to, to, to thank uh, the leader uh, and Robin for the for the great conversation. I thought I'd take a bit of a different approach to the thank you today, if if, if that's okay, Paul. And Paul's looking nervous, saying, "What the heck is this guy going to say?" You know, we talk about the election campaign being 190 something days away, and we talk about a lot of these issues. And Andrea and I were talking at the table about you know, Bruce Power being a company in rural Ontario, some of the, the differences between challenges in urban Ontario and rural Ontario, and I, and I think a conversation on those issues is really important. But one of the things I think that, that it really I want to say in terms of thanking the leader is we need to remember that behind election campaigns and behind all of these conversations, there's real people that are putting their name on a ballot, whether it's on the in the third party, the official opposition. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and it is very easy for us to sometimes forget about that. And uh, while most of us in this room love to be observers of the process, not many of us in this room have our names on the ballot. So if I could just ask everybody to stand up in the room who's an MPP or is putting their name on a ballot in the next election, and let's give them a round of applause for their public service. If anybody else wants to declare there's a podium up here, you can come over right after. Anyway, that's all I want to say. Thank you, Andrea, for the, for the conversation today. Thank you, all those folks who stood up for your public service and really looking forward to an active uh, debate over the next 190-something days. So thank you very much. I think I saw a few people start to get up and then sit down a little bit at the back there.
All right, we're uh, about to wrap things up. So thanks again for Bruce Power, our generous sponsor, as well as the Ontario Real, Est uh, Real Estate Association as our VIP sponsor. We, uh, we're a not-for-profit club, and we just simply couldn't host these lunches without sponsors. So a warm round of applause for them, please. Um, and although our club has been around since 1903, we've moved into the modern world, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I think we have a Snapchat. I don't use it, but I think we have one at the Empire Club. Pretty impressive, so please check us out. And our next lunch is November the 27th. Mr. Rob McEwen and Dr. Michael Laflamme, they're talking about advances in stem cell research, and that will be at One King West. So thank you again for your attendance today. The meeting is now adjourned. Have a wonderful afternoon.